Mage! Hello, Mage fans. This is Adam Simpson for Mage the Podcast. I'm joined today by Terry Robinson. How are you doing, Terry? I am great. I am excited to talk about people with their hands on their hips, punching Nazis, advancing scientists, getting the dame for whatever value of dame you personally prefer as a human being, and to talk about the Sons of Ether. Yes, it's another episode of the Tomes of Magic. We're talking about the Sons of Ether, or Sons of Ether, uh, depending on how you pronounce that word. That is the first tradition book, which was put out during the days of first edition, but getting very close to the transition in 1995, where we switched over to second edition. Dun, dun. And this book was... It, it has, in the publication date, 1993, although I have a suspicion that it might have hit the shelves closer to 1994. This one was written by the great Bill Bridges, with some additional material added by Paul Mercer, Josh Hancock, Heather Curatola, and, of course, developed by Satiros Bricado, uh, who was publishing under a, a different name in those days. And this book is, uh, you know, when I just have to stop and think about this book, and I am just amazed at how good this book is. I mean, this book actually surprises me. Uh, Terry and I were, were warming, uh, warming up for this episode, and we were, we were talking about how much we liked this book. We, we actually started talking about which of us liked it more, and it got rather heated. The book is that good. We've challenged each other to a duel of science. My miniature robots will be going up against Adam's death rays. Just putting that out there. <laughs> so, uh, before we actually get into some of the material that we wanted to discuss, I believe uh, Terry had a few things to tell us about. I have three, count them, three notes. One, if you're listening to this before the end of July and you're interested in participating in the Duplicity Twitter Chronicle, get a hold of Ira Grace at made storyteller on twitter more information will be in the show notes item two if you're hearing this before gen con and you would like to say hi to me at gen con remember at gen con say hi to me at gen con third this would be this would be the gen con the, yes the convention yes okay. i believe it's short for genetics conference i think it's a progenitor event i'm not entirely sure but we'll find out when we get there it may be Generations Convention, but oh, I could be wrong. Oh, that makes sense. That would explain all the old people that go. Um, so <laughs> I am actually going to Gen Con with a friend of mine from high school who, where we had a conversation, and I'm only barely exaggerating, where he's like, do you play board games? I'm like, no, I don't really play board games. He's like, I really like board games, but I wish there was like a plot and like things happened and there was an opportunity to like make a story. And I'm like, you realize role-playing games exist. I literally do a podcast about it. He's like, role-playing games? Like what? I'm like, Dungeons and Dragons? He's like, you can play that like around a table? Yeah, yeah. We've been doing it for almost 40 years at this point. He's like, oh, interesting. Can I try one of these role-playing games at Gen Con? I'm like, yes. Some people... you, might, you might find some of that. Yeah, one or two. I can gamble at a casino? So... <laughs> So, yeah, uh, there's trees in the forest. That's amazing. So I'm super jazzed to expose him to that. So if you see me with a person who's just looking at the world wide-eyed and bright-eyed, um, it's either him or someone is on ecstasy. Either of those is fine. But if you see a guy in a Maids the Podcast t-shirt, it's probably me. Either that or someone is selling bootlegged merch. The third item, thanks for buying my book. A Magical Fiasco, A Full Tilt Guide to Story Creation. The episode that actually includes the promotion for it hasn't gone out yet, but I assume by the time this episode goes out four weeks from now, from when we're recording, hundreds, if not thousands, possibly millions of copies will have been sold. If it's millions, I'll know that there was some sort of bit flip error that occurred on the Storyteller Vault indicating the volumes were that high. And those are my notes. Okay. Well, this book was so good that... People come and ask me, it's like, Adam, would you recommend uh, buying a copy of uh, Sons of Ether, you know, the first tradition book? And I say, no, no, actually, look, let's be perfectly clear on this. I do not recommend anyone go out and buy a copy of Sons of Ether, tradition book. I recommend you buy two copies, yes. one for reading, <laughs> one for putting on the shelf in case something happens to the first copy. As a conversation That's my piece. recommendation. I, I'm very pleased because... Also, as of the time that this goes out, hopefully I will have received all of the Dead Tree copies of the original tradition books. I've always been using the Traditions Gathered ones, and at the start of all of our book review episodes, when you hold up that shiny tome, I, for for a brief moment, in yet another way, envy you and your life. <laughs> 
Well, um, I'm sure you'll enjoy those uh, foil copies when they come. Yeah, there is uh, something little little special about these. The uh, second run of uh, tradition books was in the revised edition era, and uh, they did not go for the foil copies of those, which uh, I guess makes them a little unique. But coming around to the Sons of Ether, uh, this book was very well organized, very well written. There were some sections that I just I could just go into paroxysms when I think about them because I enjoy them so much. So for that reason, it's probably better that Terry talk us through. We start with six rock'em sock'em pages of Nazi punching. The frame narrative of this book is that the Sons of Ether put out a periodical known as Paradigma or Paradigma. And the frame is that different etherites, different scientists have submitted works to this to fit into this introductory issue zero that the Sons of Ether can give to new recruits to get them quickly up to speed on the politics, the preferences, the history, and so on of it. So everything in here is done in an epistolary format until we get to the appendix. That is to say, it is in the form, by and large, of letters, plus an in-character narrator. This is largely the way the other books do it, but the notable thing here is, much like the paradox section in Book of Madness, we are getting a bunch of contradictory views, or different views on the same thing, not necessarily contradictory. So you have a letter saying, we have a proud tradition that says that that is working for the advancement of humanity and then there will be a letter immediately after it that says the greatest error of our tradition is behind us we have fallen to petty squabbling and we're no longer doing the work we need to do to advance the needs of the consensus and to include that kind of internal criticism allows the book to sidestep a weakness i think of a lot of the other books where we make mention of the fact that it seems like they're glossing over some pretty dark stuff and just saying, yeah, sure, sometimes we have to strangle someone to death in a back alley, but what you gonna do about it? And they kind of shrug their shoulders and move on with it. The sections themselves starts out with a brief bit of fiction about Doc Eon and his adventures. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Eon. Then we get an introduction indicating the history of the group. This is interesting because even as the group says, this is our history, it even there includes differing opinions. Like the first letter starts with, hey, Aretas was the original writer of the text that eventually became known as the Kitab al-Alasir. And then later it says, hey, new scholarship says it's actually this other thing. So even the history section has kind of disagreeing ideas. There's an interesting call out where they mention the Parmenides. Originally, the Sons of Ether were going to be known as the Parmenideans, and we'll go into detail later as to why that was actually a bad name to pick when they suddenly realized, oh wait, the Sons of Ether philosophy and the Parmenideans actually completely disagree on this fundamental tenet of reality, but they agree on a, a bunch of other stuff, so we're going to have to change that in post. And they did. And then they go through their history. And despite being a technomancer group with a lowercase t, they use technomagic as their primary form of magic and technology as their primary set of focuses. They have a remarkably long history. It traces back to about 5 BCE. It goes through how the group coped with the technocracy, pushing down their spirit and jubilance. In the same way that the virtual adepts were considered disruptive because of their tendency for pranks and the fact that they monomaniacally pushed forward computers, the Sons of Ether or the Electrodyne engineers were kind of put down because of their complete disregard for, I think this is the first canon reference to it, the timetable, which was the New World Order's list of these are technologies that we're going to introduce to sleepers and when, this is how we're going to do it, and this is the pace at which progress is going to go. The Sons of Ether said, that's too slow. We need to push at that timetable as fast as humanly possible. The technocracy got fed up with that, and they eventually said, you're out. That brings us to the Sons of Ether a little bit around the time of World War One. It talks about the World War One and World War Two timelines for the Sons of Ether. It talks about the greatest single historical event in terms of coolness in mage history, which is the Tsar Vargo holding the world hostage. That is also the character on the depiction of the chariot for the mage tarot. I'm holding it up. And then it goes into the recruitment philosophies of the group, how it operates. I think the Sons of Ether win for having the friendliest recruiting method. They have a conversation or they give a potential recruit a book. And if they like the book, and come up with a good idea, they're in. None of this, you need to survive a grueling assay, or none of this, you need to be nearly killed. It's just a case of, did you like the book? What'd you think about it? Did you come up with any new ideas? 
Okay, how about you come back next Thursday and we have sandwiches? Best way of being introdu- introduced. It's pretty great. <laughs> it goes over their educational process, the difficulty of seeding promising apprentices to become full-fledged scientists. And one of the themes that constantly emerges is the fight between internal politics and the organization because by and large at this time, the organization is a bunch of stuffy, probably white men trying to prove that they're the best scientist out there and kind of sandbagging their ideas and not offering it to the consensus, what they call the massive sleepers, which is also the technocracy term. And the fight between internal politics and how they're going to advance what is available to sleepers and how to propose new technologies and ideas that can improve the lives of sleepers. One of my favorite lines is to say, a theory that does not better the sleepers isn't true science, it's base magic. And that is one of like the four quotes out of this where I'm like, I love science too. It's it's amazing. I don't have something in my eye. (laughs) It goes through the factions. This is the first book that divorces factions from essences. We get like eight of them. You have a bunch that are pointing externally. You have some that are pointed internally. We get a whole bunch of allies, how they pick acolytes. We get other information like other realms that they inhabit, such as ether space, Victoria Station, the Gernsbeck Continuum, Hollow Earth, and the standard sections on the opinions they have with other groups. Here, this is a case, as with all stereotype sections, where the stereotype often tells you more about the group stating the opinion than about the group about which the opinion is being expressed. But all of that is completely woven through with this strong sense of there is knowledge out there, we must find it, and we must either use it for personal advancement and political gain or to help the sleepers. We get a bunch of character templates, and then we get an appendix. We finally get a little bit more rules on how to introduce Ether Space and Victoria Station and the Hollow Earth, and then we get big old character sheet at the end of it. And that is the list of sections. Well, I, I really enjoyed the prelude uh, for this book. Uh, that's the uh, short fiction about Doc Eon and, and his terrific trio adventuring in the 1930s of the world of Mage. There are a lot of Mage books where I read the prelude and it's just like, eh, well, okay, yeah, I guess there's there's a Things prelude were there. Dark and, and then gray, I and then a dark yeah. gray thing happened to me, and there was a moment of joy where I realized I could light the world on fire, and now people are after me. Yeah, with a lot of the preludes, it's like you read it, it's like, well, okay, I guess that's some fiction. Now let's get into the book. But with, with this book it's like oh wow i i really enjoy this fiction it is very entertaining it is very well written it, it gives me some really cool ideas and then i stop to think about it and it's like but does it belong in a mage book is it is it pulling its own weight in this particular book and yes it, it certainly is uh, uh first off the prelude was supposed to be something that really happened to doc eon in his three acolytes the terrific trio but one of the members of this trio is copying down uh, what happened He's typing it up and then passing it off as fiction that gets published in the pulp magazines of the 1930s that sleepers read. And so it's just so fun to see the little edits that he makes to hide the important facts. For example, uh, Doc Eon did not learn a great trick with ropes from the Akashic Brotherhood. No, he learned it from the Eastern Brotherhood. And they are not struggling against the technocracy. It's the mechanocracy. And for a mage fan reading through this, it's like, oh, I got that. That is so clever. It just makes it more fun. But getting back to my point of does it pull its own weight it gives a very a really good illustration of a struggle between two mages who are both using coincidental techno magic the villain is a uh, a nazi leader uh, back in the 1930s and he has Yes, the mechanocracy. And he's got this uh, helmet that is going to use a, a mind sphere effect, and it's going to you know, really cause problems for Doc Eon. And because everyone's at gunpoint, he manages to get the helmet on Doc Eon's head. And so Doc Eon is going to, according to the mage rules, use counter magic and his own knowledge of the mind sphere to try and fight back against this uh, Nazi technocrat foe. And as you're reading this so we get this really good example of coincidental techno magic and also a lot of the mage fiction in all of the books pre- published up to this point we don't get a lot of acolytes we don't get a lot of examples of people who are, are not 
mages, but they're following the mages and helping the mages. The rule books tell us how important they are, but we don't see them in the fiction. And here we get a really cool example of three dedicated acolytes that Doc Eon could not make it without. And it's just it's just so much fun to read. And the first time I read this, when I was in my teens, uh, I totally did not understand what this was a reference to. And now, years later, that Doc Eon is a stand-in for Doc Savage, who was a hero of the real-world pulp fiction stories of the 1930s. It was author Lester Dent who first gave us Doc Savage stories starting in March 1933. And Doc Savage was a very popular character for roughly 20 years or, or even longer. There were a large number of Doc Savage books published, but Doc Savage had helpers in his stories that followed him around. And so author Bill Bridges was, was making a homage to that. There were a lot of them. Like during the pulp era, the degree to which someone could seemingly sit down at a typewriter and bang out an entire novel in an afternoon shows a certain kind of workmanlike ability when it comes to writing that I'm frankly impressed by. And boy, howdy, did Doc Savage have a widow's peak. That, that is a haircut you could set a watch to. <laughs> uh, that that man had like a 12 pack it is it is some 1930s beefcake all right it's pretty impressive you're like there isn't actually a muscle there and he's got two yeah and uh coming from there to the later sections of the book there were many uh first edition mage tradition books where the author really wanted to get uh, every ounce out of their fiction that they could and so the fiction in the prelude carries through for the rest of the book but in the sons of ether tradition book that's not the case but uh there's more fiction in this book after the prelude, but it is so artfully done. Many different art, uh, voices, many different points of view woven together. We see many perspectives. Uh, my my hat is off to Mr. Bridges. He, he really uh, crushed it on this one, and we get a really good book out of it. And a moment of silence for the illustrator Quentin Hoover, who died in 2013, I think, at the age of just 49. I knew him first as an illustrator for Magic the Gathering, and it wasn't until years later when I started playing Mage and I picked up this book that I realized about the same time that he was doing some beautiful card art. He was also doing the illustrations in some Mage books, and this is just hands down great stuff. Yeah, he, he really was a talented artist, and his illus his full-page illustrations for this book are, are very well chosen, very well done. I first became familiar with his art in, he was working for Wizards of the Coast that was doing Magic the Gathering, and just before they put that out, they had the uh, Primal Order series of uh, supplements for fantasy role-playing, and they had a book, Chessboards, Planes of Possibility, where he did whimsical, abstract, kind of almost surreal illustrations showing people walking from one magical world to another and standing between the two in some illustrations and just marvelously done a lot of fun to see and what did you think of the fact that a lot of the sections internally disagreed where in very few cases were you given a definitive answer except in terms of mood and feeling like the fact that we get multiple origin stories up until relatively recent history is that something as a storyteller you want to see or that you don't want to see it is something that I do want to see, and especially when it's well done. As you mentioned earlier, there are a number of tradition books where the author or authors, you get the impression they're so enthusiastic about the, the group that they're writing about that they want to present them in the best possible light. And Bill Bridges uh, showed every indication of being totally confident uh, with himself, and he presented several different flaws with the, the Sons of Ether today and over the years. And I think that accentuated things so much. I like to see the good and the bad about a, a group when we're writing a whole book to focus on them. Yeah, which is interesting because I think the next book we review is Ascension's Right Hand, which should theoretically fill in some of those gaps, which almost makes me wonder if this was being worked on at the same time and they're like, oh, by the way, I'm doing this book on this. Maybe you, you drop something toasty about what the acolytes are like. That That is certainly possible. I, I actually got that impression uh, a couple of times when I looked at books that were released next to each other, and then they both kind of mention each other. But uh, sometimes it's, it's well done. It's fun to see. Other times, a, bit, a little clumsy. And we were mentioning that earlier that the original name of this group was going to be the Parmenideans, based on the philosophy of Parmenides, until in the editing stage for Mage First Edition, I believe, one of the one of the reviewers pointed out, this isn't what Parmenides believed. So Parmenidean philosophy was kind of broken into two 
stages. One was the idea that Parmenides believed that the world was real and eternal, that everything that existed in some way always existed, and anything that does not exist cannot be instantiated. So there is no way of going from existence to non-existence, and vice versa. And that is kind of at odds with the whole spirit of discovery. And they even have an aside on page 16 where they say, oh, by the way, people claim that this original work by Aretas was actually the ideas of Parmenides. This is why that's wrong. And I thought it was super great of them to be like, oh, by the way, just in case you saw saw a preview copy and they call them the Parmenideans, this is, this is where that's an oopsie. What was the other half of that that you had done? You had done some homework looking at the actual works of Parmenides. And what was your takeaway from that? So there was this idea that Parmenides seemed to state that anything that can be conceived, anything that can be thought up and clearly communicated and named and discussed among people, it can only be thought of, it can only be spoken of because it is a real thing. And the fact that no one you know has ever seen it or no historians ever wrote about it uh, did not seem to be an issue for Parmenides. If you could talk about it, that's only because it was real. And if, if it was something you could not discuss, it was something you could not clearly put into words and think through, then it, that's because it doesn't exist and it never can exist and never will exist. And so th- this seems interesting to bring into a game of mages who are using sphere magic to change the world. This, for me, is a clear-cut example of changing reality. You have a son of Ether who thinks up a, a substance, um, a theory, uh, some element of science, and he says, hey, I can think this up, and that's only because it is a real thing. Well, it, with a little bit of elbow grease, a little bit of hard work and planning, I can pluck that from the potential, bring it into the actual, make it a part of my world. And that is why the uh, etherite scientists are always talking about the importance of having their own theories and their own discoveries because they are pulling things from the potential into the real world. So you say that, and one of my immediate curiosities is then that suggests that the tie between the sons of ether and technology doesn't necessarily need to be the case. But there is nothing saying that, a, that an etherite can't read the kitab, say that all thoughts that exist can be expressed. It is simply a reflection of will and elbow grease to make that happen and apply that to an animistic faith or apply that to a practitioner of Qigong or any other any other traditional belief set. Do you think there's something about it that, that forces it to be tied to technology or is that just kind of an accident of history that it made its way into the hands of a Venetian merchant and then into a hermetic who thought that science was the best way to express this? I don't think it, it necessitates a technomagic or a scientific point of view. Uh, I think that uh, the writers of Mage could have used this set of ideas uh, with any group that they, they wanted to work with. I think it's it's interesting that they seemed to sense a correlation between all of the interesting and lively scientific treatises uh, that you can read coming from 1700s and 1800s where people were postulating about what the world might really be like and then they found out years later oh no that was that was totally wrong what was i thinking about and and to look at that and then th- and look at this idea of parmenides you know if you can think about it that's because it's real and mages can take things that they imagine and use their sphere magic to make it a real thing in the real world to put these two together, it, it seemed to be a happy accident. It could have been quite different. But there is another way that many mage fans portray and even understand the Sons of Ether. Um, I believe that these ideas that we are, that Terry and I are talking about now, I think they are closely linked to the tradition, the Sons of Ether. But I think it was not very well communicated by the uh, early you know, published mage books. I think Sons of Ether tradition book is the first time where we really bring it all out uh, to the attention of the reader and say, hey, let's, let's really look this over. And I believe as a result of that, there are a lot of people who run the Sons of Ether as a sort of alternate techno-mage. This is a case where, to lift the veil, I think this is much better explained in the Sons of Ether revised tradition book. But the idea is that all scientific theories contain the spark of imagination, and it is predicated on a belief in the way the universe works. 
and that our goal as people should be to have as broad a paradigm as humanly possible to bring as many ideas and theories as possible within the walls of what we consider to be possible. And by expanding that wall outward, we are expanding our degree of awareness and our ability to to ascend. I also find it interesting that Ascension here is not mentioned at all, that we get no talk of the inner quest. We strictly get a conversation of understanding the world as opposed to necessarily the self and a desire to make things good for sleepers. And I think that brings me to probably my favorite event that they talk about in the history section, which is the 1914 revelation of Tsar Vargo, who is this character who pops up in etherite history to say, hey, we need to do something to right the balance of history, to allow progress to occur. He's kind of mocked away at the Paris exhibition. There's a bunch of people that argue that the problem with advancing ideas is that they will be mobilized by nation states to create arms and armaments to wage war on one another. Tsar Vargo thought that this was, this was ridiculous and we could rise above such things. So on July 24th, 1940, I'm sad that I didn't do anything for the 100th anniversary of this in <laughs> retrospect, that he appears over the cities of the world with ether ships that are just hovering. Everyone's weapons are useless against it. He has these giant, massive Zeppelin-like things when the rest of the world is at best using biplanes and machine guns, and he has ray weapons, and he is just taking down anything that is being thrown at him non-violently, as in he, he, he refuses to use lethal force. He demands that the governments of the world submit to him and his plan for peace within three hours. They do. And then the technocrats are like, we can't let this stand. They send a whole bunch of robots. He nukes the robots. And then they send a whole bunch of progenitor monstrosities at him. And he is afraid to use lethal force against them. And he just hightails it and leaves. And there are rumors that Tsar Vargo's fleet is out there somewhere and may make a return someday. And etherite historians are wondering, how was this blatant violation or blatant triggering of the paradox effect as they refer to paradox possible and one of the explanations they give is in their heart of hearts at that time sleepers wanted someone to bring peace and order to the world and they suspended disbelief or did not find it unbelievable that there was this character using the tools of science to bring it about until the technocracy went and ruined everything because it would break the timetable me <laughs> and i just i i'm not going to quite say i was tearing up when i read through that because i wound up tearing up later because I'm a dork, but that was that was easily my favorite historical incident. That and the fact that they outlined the history of the Soltificati, the previous holders of the seat of matter. Yeah, the Tsar Vargo uh, story in the history section of this book was uh, amazing. I really like that uh, signature character. I, I just want to point out that uh, this is another really good example of uh, what I call the, the shadow history that was more emphasized in first edition and far less emphasized in second edition. Second edition of, of Mage uh, really had this um, joy of finding real-world historical events, groups, etc., and discussing how mages were affected by that or how they might have been involved with that. And so tying mages to real history was, was a real joy of, of second edition. First edition had more uh, what I call shadow history, that is, things that mages did and was very important to them, but sleepers never even knew they happened. And, and this is a great example. Tsar Vargo came down with his ether ships and caused a major world event, but because of, of paradox and perhaps other factors, it never went into the history books. Years later, sleepers don't even know that it happened. If you were to tell them about it, they would think it's a silly story. This just adds so much interest to the world of mage. I, I really enjoy it. And also, you mentioned the spirit, uh, the, the, I guess you could say that the spirit of this book, the feel of it, there is a feel of optimism, of, of hope. It's like, we have the greatest thing, true science, and we are going to make the world a better place. Yes, we've got problems. Yes, we're um, bumping up against each other and we've got our, our problems. But, you know, that is nothing compared to this wonderful thing that we're doing and this wonderful direction in which we're traveling. And as the back of the book says, this is involved with the 1930s pulp and Victorian era and those are also uh, two eras where we have that same attitude. There was this, not even so much a desire, but just an expectation that science is going to take us to every corners of the globe. It's going to take us to the stars. We're going to resolve all these problems. I mean, it's just a given that we're moving towards this great future. And I'm not saying that's absolutely how everyone should think, but you know, when you come across it, 
it, it does something it does something to you, something good and something that, that really attracts you. Yeah, I, I'm a person who generally believes in the idea of progress, that ideas accumulate over time. They're remarkably hard to kill off. And good ideas tend to accumulate, which kind of creates this built-in mechanism for progress. It is by no means guaranteed. But there are cases where I do have to take a moment. For instance, at Thanksgiving last year, my family kind of looked around the table and we realized that if the year had been 1950, five of the six people at that table would have been dead because they had medical conditions that only technologies that had been developed in the last 70 years were able to treat. And as many problems as we have at any given time in history, I like to take a moment to, to realize in certain very critical ways, things are better than they used to be. We got mm -hmm. a lot of work to do on everything else. And I think this book does a good idea of portraying the, both sides of that. And the other thing the book does is it points out that this is optimism, that individual scientists are able to do that. But unless they bring it into the sleeper world, unless they get other people on board, unless they figure out how to share ideas, they are doomed to just be mad geniuses tinkering in laboratories and, and not actually improving the world. And there are several cases here where it points out the failures or the cases where that hasn't quite happened or the internal problems. The letter entitled Dear Chauvinist Pigs from Dame <laughs> Atomica does a pretty good job of saying there is one type of progress you have recognized as a group, but you've ignored these other types of progress. You've ignored institutional progress. You've in ignored progress in terms of equality. That is something to do a better job of addressing in future cases. The character of Alexis Hastings pops in and out, who I love in terms of providing a counterpoint to, again, these white bread chauvinist by and large men that like to meet in Paris surrounded by brass and wood. And I think the book does a pretty good job of saying there are two sides to this coin, but we work as hard as we can to keep this one side showing. There's probably a vastly better metaphor to it, but yeah. It's, it's very well put. This is one of the few tradition books where the real spirit and idealism of the group being discussed shows through on every page and just infects the reader in, in such a great way. that. And we, what you know what's, what's funny, uh, since uh, the 30s and 40s uh, pulp stories keep coming up, um, I have been reading uh, some stuff from uh, American author Stanley Weinbaum, who was writing in the first half of the 1930s. He wrote three short stories that are really a lot of fun to read. Uh, all three of them feature a character named Haskell von Manderputz, who is a brilliant physicist, and he uh, assists the, the main character. Uh, the stories are called The Worlds of If, The Ideal, and The Point of View. And uh, these were written about 60 years before the first book for Mage was ever on the shelves. And uh, it just strikes me how this von Manderputz character is not only like a son, a typical mad scientist son of Ether, I mean, he is exactly like a typical mad scientist son of Ether character. I mean, to every detail. It's like, I, I actually encourage uh, those of you listening um, to, uh, to read these three short stories. It doesn't take long to do. They're a lot of fun to read. And another thing about this book, we get some really good quotes to kick off the sections. I mean, Bill Bridges really delivers. There's there's a lot of thought-provoking and, and witty quotes uh, thrown into this book. So uh, he really used that aspect of Mage Books very well. And I realized that my microphone was on mute. So what I wanted to drop in about your stories, the neat thing about the Sons of Ether is they allow you to take those old stories pull them into a modern context, and then add whatever commentary you want to add to your story. One of the problems with Pulp Era Fiction was the idea that you wanted a clear good guy, you wanted a clear bad guy. There is the concept of Chekhov's Nazi. That is the character that once introduced, you know before the end of the play is going to get punched. When you're grabbing these sources, do not hesitate to add your spin to it. Within the individual sections describing the organization or describing the activities of the organization, was there anything that really popped out at you? I feel like the one critical thing that was lacking was an idea of how the Sons of Aether function as part of the traditions. They always felt to me like they could be the Q division of the traditions, like providing neat bits and bobs and gadgets and so on, but we never get a hint that they do anything like that. But then again, we don't really get a lot of hints that the traditions tend to work in cross-tradition groups in, in any real way. I also find it interesting that this book is kind of a snapshot in time scientifically. Like they refer to dark matter 
having popped into existence. But just four years after this book came out, Dark Energy would come onto the scene, which composes 75% seemingly of the matter energy in the universe. So this is another one of those interesting cases, like when we were reading about the virtual adepts, that the Cabrini Green mentioned there would be dem demolished shortly after that book went into the public. This is another case where there's kind of a scientific snapshot. They also do a terrible job of discussing quantum uncertainty, but that's kind of be beyond the uh, the scope of this episode. But yeah, was there anything within that like <clears throat> internal thing that kind of jumped out at you? I guess now that you mention it, uh, I do remember several instances in uh, mage books published up to this point where there is mention of the virtual adepts helping out the Chantry in a specific way yeah. or providing tools to other tradition mages they're working with. And we don't hear about that quite as much with uh, Ether mages. Although one thing I do recall from the first two editions of Mage was the Ether mages were the ones who provided the vehicles that everybody liked to ride in. <laughs> the fantastic that, car! The Spider-Mobile. Well, yeah, but it, it was just once or twice. It, it was a couple of times where, uh, whether it's an ether ship or an underground drilling machine or a submarine or an airship, Zeppelin kind of thing, or you know, just all these different examples, a super train, whatever. So uh, one idea I had, I was thinking uh, sometimes uh, people want to discuss uh, some, some angle where they can bring in like some earth-shaking realization or grand angst or, or some, some really neat idea to, to play out with a certain character uh, over the course of a, a chronicle that they're doing. And I thought with, uh, with an ether mage, one of the uh, interesting ideas might be the concept of, of a kind of grand angst when the etherite mage realizes after years of working so hard that he is not discovering underlying truths about the world in which he lives, but his own sphere magic, his own enlightened will is causing the effects that he thinks he is objectively observing. And then I, I just pictured this scene where after, you know, so many game sessions and so many stories where the ether mage has to look over his laboratory and realize, I've been fooling myself for years. It's all false. I've been creating the things I thought I was studying. Uh, that brings up a fundamental concern I have with the way that science is presented in Mage. So there is a part where they talk about the Mickelson-Morley experiment, which is to say, prior to, we believe that there was some sort of medium that carried light. In the same way that you needed something to carry sound, that if you evacuate a chamber, no sound can be transmitted through it, we thought that there had to be a medium for light. And if that was the case, then the speed of light going in one direction should differ from the speed of light when the Earth was traveling in a different direction. On a marble table floating in a bath of mercury to create this very sensitive interferometer to say, hey, one time of the year, we're going to measure the interference pattern going this way. And then half a year later, we're going to measure it going the other way when the Earth is notionally going in opposite directions. If the interference pattern is the same, either we are magically at the center of this or the idea of the ether is kind of kind of kaput. They do the experiment, nothing comes out the other end. And the technocrats are going to use this to destroy the theory of ether that the sons of ether uh, some of which who'd rename themselves from the Electrodyne engineers to destroy the science they were working towards to kind of put these put these rascals down. I don't have a good idea in my head of what it means when the technocracy, quote unquote, discovers a law of nature. Is it just the fact that when a new phenomenon is discovered, the first discoverer is able to come up with a coherent theory of how it works and then promulgate that? And suddenly that's how reality works? Because later, Heisenberg and Schrodinger of quantum mechanical fame are mentioned as sleepers that discover a law. And if the technocracy science is really 50 years ahead of time, shouldn't they be able to decree all the laws? And when you're dealing at a scale that literally no human has previously been able to see, you don't get to do the thing in Mage where you say, everyone believes that things fall, but not everyone necessarily believes in gravity. I had no good sense of how that worked. I, I fully understand that in Mage, one of the ideas is that technology is a type of magic. Sure, but when you're coming up with supposedly a new universal principle, what does that process actually look like? Do you have an answer, Adam? The idea in the early days of first edition Mage was that the technocracy understood that they were mages and they were using magic through their uh, scientific uh, tools and, and theories. And they believed that for the common good of mages and sleepers both, they were codifying 
uh, magic. They were turning it into something different than it was before, and they were making magic uh, more predictable, uh, safer. And in this process, they were deciding what science would be, the scientific principles, the laws of nature. They were choosing what it would be after having conferences and, and hashing it out with each other. And then they would decide when they would announce these inventions of theirs to the sleeper public, to the masses. My question is, so when Einstein discovers a law of reality or Mary Curie discovers a way that the world works as notionally a sleeper, what is then happening? Well, in the early days of First Edition Mage, there was a strong emphasis put on conspiracies and the hidden masters uh, behind the curtain who were, you know, pulling the strings of everything, the whole world. And so the technocracy was this monolithic, mysterious, very powerful and very influential entity that was pushing discoveries under the noses of sleepers. Or when a sleeper did discover something, if it fit in with the technocracy's plans, they allowed it to be known and communicated and reinforced. Whereas if there was a sleeper discovery or theory, whatever, that they did not like, they would silence it and discredit it. So in my hypothesis, then, Einstein comes up with an idea that is theoretically possible, that is consistent with other laws of science as we know them, and explains some sort of phenomenon. That law now exists because he, as even a sleeper, has instantiated an idea. And through the scientific process, that becomes established. That is not necessarily the root law that reality actually follows. But once that idea is promulgated amongst uh, practitioners of science, it becomes how reality behaves when observed. Yeah, and in later first edition and second edition and, and moving forward in time, this you know grand conspiracy and secret masters concept was, it was watered down, it was reduced. But yeah, later on, the sleepers can make their own discoveries, but if those discoveries go against the consensus, they're not going to go very far. They will be quote-unquote proven wrong. The control over the academy is going to, to whir into effect. So this is positing then that there are no necessary ground truths to reality, that at all cases the laws of reality are being laid down by the sleepers that witness them, and there, there is no base laws of reality. Yeah, and as a mage fan, I realized this, and of course it was brought to a head by the Stephen Wick essay at the back of uh, uh, Book of Shadows, uh, Mage Player's Guide for First Edition. The creators of Mage imagined a, a universe that where truth, all truth, really was subjective. Now, this, uh, the relationship with mage and science has never been one I am comfortable with. Like when I when we talk about that subjectivity, to me that is subjective in terms of the eyes of the holder, not necessarily in reality changing in response to the witness. But that's one way to run with it. The other thing that super bothered me is in the section on focuses, whenever I think about a focus. There are two parts to it, at least. There is a worldview that says, this is the true laws by which reality functions for whatever character you're dealing, even a non-technocratic paradigm. And then there are the, the term that we will use from M20, there are the implements or practices that make that real. So I'm a hermetic and I want to use forces three prime two to just nuke a guy. So I believe that as a hermetic, I have special access to the four cardinal Archangels, I am going to summon Mikael, the Archangel of Fire. Apologies if that's the wrong one. Not super familiar with Hermetic mysticism. I am going to draw this pentacle, which I know contains special properties that force a aspect of that being to manifest. And I've drawn it in such a way that it is going to express itself in this sudden burst of flame. So I have the paradigm, which is to say, angels exist. I have access to them. Pentacles are how they are instantiated. And then the other side of that is the actual pentacle. I draw the pentacle, I finish the effect, I roll some arite dice, boom, there's an effect. The problem I had with the SOE book is we get the second half, we get instruments and practices, mostly instruments, but we do not get the worldviews. We do not get the theories that would underlie them. And if I want to use a gravitic engine to increase gravity locally to cause bashing damage using a forces four effect or something like that, it is on me to come up with the theory underlying that gravitic engine. And I feel like if I'm going to present this activity to my players with any degree of internal consistency, I need to provide both the theory and 
the implement. And the Sons of Ether are kind of in a unique position in that they believe all theories are true. But when I'm at the table, I need a theory that is coherent in some way. Even if it doesn't observe science, it needs to be some sort of discarded theory. I would have loved a giant list of discarded scientific theories or previously believed historically inaccurate one, or even just zany, kooky conspiracy theories that yeah. I could tap to bring that. And that is that is probably my main criticism. And that's something that it took literally 20 years seemingly to fix. This was a shortcoming to the book. And, and right after that section, we get the section of foci, and it lists possible foci for the nine spheres. And it, it, it's just like a comma-separated list. It's yeah. <laughs> like life. We have operating table, microscope, hypodermic needle, beakers, lots of beakers, lightning. It's just this list of things. It's like, yeah, okay, uh, yeah, words, terms, all right, okay. But since we have a section specifically for the science of magic, and then it's followed directly by a section on foci, giving us some more science terms, some more discarded yeah. names of theories to look up on the internet, and uh, some some foci that connect to them. I mean, drawing a line between the two since they are like literally t uh, next to each other on the opened pages, that would have been great. And it, I don't think it would have been really that hard, but we don't get it here. And it, it is a shortcut. It is a shame. Yeah. And it's the one case where with most groups, with most groups, the theory behind each sphere is pretty well fixed. And the focus that draws from that may be varied. For instance, you can believe that life is the heartbeat of creation. You can harness that with dance. You can harness that with song. You can harness that by literally holding someone's heart. So the theory is pretty constant and the implementation in terms of the focus is pretty varied. The Sons of Ether are this interesting inversion of that where they have 10,000 theories, but the methods of implementation are going to kind of coalesce in this sciencey way that aren't going to be hugely deviant between, between two etherites. We may have different apparatuses, but chances are we're going to have similar devices, even if they seemingly harness different theories. If you disagree, Maids of podcast at gmail.com at Terry Robinson on Twitter. We would be remiss if we left out the factions of which there are seven or eight here. And this is gold. I thought not only was it really cool to give us more than four factions, but for me, it just seemed appropriate that of all the traditions, one of which that would not feel a strong need to connect a faction to an, an essence such as primordial or questing, etc. It would be the Sons of Ether. And so instead of, of linking four different groups to an essence, we just get this list of totally cool factions. We have the Ethernauts, and these are the uh, sons and daughters of Ether who have a strong desire to get out into Ether space, which is either a term for the Deep Umbra or a large section of the deep umbra moving on we have the utopians those who believe in a bright future and work hard to achieve it they fully believe in the value of science and the righteousness of their cause to benefit the masses we have the cybernauts they see a strong value in the digital web they establish a presence there they often friends and get along well with virtual adepts and similar uh, techno mages uh, on that are outside of the technocracy we have next uh, two groups that are really more connected with the internal politics of the, the Sons of Ether. We have the progressivists who are more progressive in their outlook and their values, and we have the traditionalists, which are the opposing group who look towards the past and are so upset with these young whippersnappers who won't get off their lawns. And we round it out with the mad scientists who are the very well-represented typical idea in most people's minds of a, of a Son of Ether, a, a scientist with a capital S who is totally dedicated to a theory or discovery that they have made. They work long hours and lose sight of everything else in their obsession to bring this uh, accomplishment to the world and bask in the glory that they earn once everyone applauds it. Last up, we have uh, Pulpiros, which are also called Adventurers, a good example of which is the prelude, Doc Eon. They are the adventurers. They are the action heroes who get out in the world. They fight the good fight. They explore the unknown places, and they never back down in the face of danger. And uh, if you think that sounds corny or stereotypical, that's your opinion. I think they're awesome. I appreciated the fact that it was not tied to essences. The group does not eschew avatars, and they even make direct references to the pure ones. Everyone take a drink. 
First, <laughs> and they talk about how the avatar is expressed in the moment of genius, that the higher scientific self comes to mind, and then they don't really dwell on it. The other thing that I find interesting is they do not shy away from mysticism. They talk about how mysticism is one half of the process of discovery and science being the other, that there's the exploration of outer space and then the exploration of inner space, as it were, of the self. And that is something that if you had quizzed me on before rereading this, I would have been like, no, no, they think that's a that's a whole bunch of hooey. Um, they certainly do believe that other groups take it to excess. Mm -hmm. For instance, when they have commentary on the Akashics or the Dream Speakers or the Rebena, their, their stereotypes on what is obviously right to them kind of comes through. This was a case where... I wish in Mage, instead of having a discrete essence, your avatar, much in the same way you have a different collection of resonances, that one's avatar would have dots in primordial or dots in pattern and so on, and each person could be a different combination of them. I have no idea how that would actually affect play, but when I was reading through these groups and being like, oh, maybe faction doesn't need to be tied to these, that was my immediate thought for like a system change that I that I wish had existed. We get Horizon Realms in a big old chunk in here, and that's pretty impressive, because oh, we are yeah. yet to get the Book of Worlds. I did not remember that Hollow Earth was a real fictional place, as in our mundane reality in 1908, The Smoky God came out, a book talking about that, and that is profoundly in the public domain. So note to self, include that in the show notes. It's available for free on Project Gutenberg. Sometimes writing ages well, sometimes it doesn't. This one didn't quite make it into the 21st century in whole form, but if you're, if you're curious about the origins of Hollow Earth, it's there. And if you want to have Nazis riding dinosaurs, you are more than welcome to have it. Just remember, you think the players are going to remember the dinosaurs, but they always remember the Nazis. <laughs> yeah, I, there were four um, otherworldly uh, locations brought into this book, and I really enjoyed all four of them. We have, of course, Ether Space, which is either a different understanding of the Deep Umbra or a particular section of it where uh, you can breathe the air without a space helmet. Uh, anything can happen. Next up, we have Victoria Station, which is a Sons of Ether chantry that orbits the moon. Not Earth, but the moon. And, of course, uh, the, the Victorian-era uh, look and feel is, is kept alive there. We have the Hollow Earth, which uh, they say used to be part of the, the actual physical Earth that people could just walk into easily. Now it has somehow shifted into uh, an umbral reality, but it is still there and can still be accessed. And we have the Gernsback Continuum, named after a real-life uh, editor of science fiction, Gernsback. Really enjoyed these four. And when we get to recommended reading, I'll have uh, a few references where you can uh, pull out some inspiration for each of these locations. Yeah, I, I I don't think there there isn't much notable remaining for me. Just a note that the Gern, the Hugo Gernsback of the Gernsback Continuum is the Hugo from which we get the Hugo Awards. So that's right, Hugo. I was thinking Hugo Gernsback, but I didn't want to say it because I might slip up. But. <laughs> oh yeah, it was a case where you're like, yes, Mister Gernsback. Mm. I was thinking um, Hugo Gernsback, but if I get that wrong, I'm going to feel so foolish. <laughs> we did get an awesome reference to the Ziggrogler and that they were somehow tied to the Nefandi, which made no sense. And we get a whole bunch of information on how they view other groups, which I didn't really care for. And the character templates are fine. The biggest note to me is this was the first case where there was a character template where you did not have one dot in the specialty sphere for the group. The mad biologist has no dots in matter. So Bill Bridges ahead of his time freeing freeing characters from the constraints of that template. Oh, there was before we pass on, there was one quote in this book that is so choice, I just can't pass it up. I thought okay. it was so well done. You do your uh, one quote, I'll do my one quote. I'll, <laughs> okay. This is literally the quote that made me cry. Okay, okay. Well, um I uh Notice that in the prelude, uh, it talked about uh, Doc Eon and uh, what an interesting fellow he was. And, of course, he was uh, operating in the 1930s. And it mentions a little later in the book that he disappeared and his acolytes missed him, but they believe he'll come back someday. And and many decades later, there's a son of Ether talking about uh, uh, many different things. And he mentions Doc Eon. And he, he says, yes, Doc Eon was a man of his time. Uh, he was a master of, of time. And, in fact... He was a man of many times. <laughs> yes. 
Now, the one that made me cry was the quote, the power the technocracy has over the consensus is staggering, but faith in the wonder of the world still survives in the hearts of most people. We must learn to use this as Vargo did. And that was my moment where I, so I live in Philadelphia. We got the Liberty Bell. We have the Constitution Center. Every time someone asks me to take them to the Constitution Center, I have to be staring at my phone during the, the, the this is America. These are our liberties. We're not quite there yet. We've got some work to do, but Darn it, look how far we've come. And I I cry like a baby. The last time I was there, there was some sort of East Asian tour group going through, and I think everyone in it was staring at me as I was blubbering like an idiot as the bald eagle goes over to me. So what's your reading list and uh, what, what are Adam's plot ideas? As I look this over, um, there was, of course, uh, a lot of mention in the history chapter to Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. Um, I, I just got the uh, Puffin Classics version, and that is a, a great inspiration for any son of Ether you might want to work on. But getting to Etherspace, I think it's worthy of mentioning some 1930 science fiction. The Lensman series by E.E. E. Doc Smith. He was a uh, science fiction author, a chemist. Uh, he was active in World War II. Uh, Quite an interesting person. In the Lensman series, we have a lot of men of science and valor who are working in space against impossible odds. Uh, I remember one scene in, in one of the novels that just blew my mind and, and actually made me think of Sons of Ether. They have uh, a scene where the Earth Alliance is talking about the enemies from a distant star who are going to attack Earth's solar system. And they're saying, yes, we've got a reliable intelligence. They are going to open up a wormhole in space. And they are going to use this wormhole through space as a great big cannon. And for ammunition, they have entire planets that they have accelerated to ridiculous speeds. They're going to use planets as bullets, and they are going to disintegrate our entire solar system. And so all these scientists are talking about it and they're not phased. They all look at each other with grim, uh, with, with firm jaws and they say, well, what are we going to do about this? And one guy says, well, I've got an idea. Let's weaponize the sun. And another guy says, that's a pretty good idea. And they do it. And, and then they describe the battle that comes out of that. I'm like, Oh my gosh, this is cool. This is big picture stuff. Uh, also, the Skylark uh, series uh, by the same author, E.E. E. Doc Smith. Uh, these are inspirations for Etherspace. Moving into Victoria Station, we have The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. Next one, of course, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea by Jules Verne. But you may not know that uh, most of the editions that you're going to find from websites, bookstores, etc., are the first translation into English, which was done years ago by a monk whose name escapes me at the at the moment. Very poor translation. There were inaccuracies in the translation. There were sections missing. And this is by far the most common copy of the book you're going to find. So when you go looking for 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, I highly recommend you pick up the paperback put out by Naval Institute Press. They're the publishers. You can get this on Amazon. It's not at all hard to find once you look for it. The Naval Institute Press edition of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Very accurate translation. The missing sections are put back. There are footnotes and an introduction that are just wonderful to read. Uh, really good stuff. And finally, uh, Around the World in 80 Days by Jules Verne. Uh, next up, we have Hollow Earth. Terry mentioned the first time that showed up in fiction and in the 1910s and 1920s and the kind of petering out in the 1930s there were a lot of authors in english-speaking countries who got fascinated by this idea and jumped on board and two books that i recommend are at the earth's core by edgar rice burroughs and its sequel called Pellucidar. These are uh, fun books to read, uh, lots of action and adventure, and uh, there's some pretty good world building about a hollow world inside our planet Earth and how it might be different from the world on the outside surface of Earth. Uh, and finally, A Journey to the Center of the Earth by Jules Verne. Uh, not quite as appropriate to the hollow Earth in Mage as At the Earth's Core is, but still a lot of good ideas and a fun read too. Uh, finally, when we get to the Gernsback Continuum, a little harder to get uh, the perfect book for that, but I recommend the complete works of Stanley Weinbaum. This is a uh, Kindle ebook you can get off of Amazon for just $2. It is a quick and easy download. I downloaded it. I read the entire thing. It was all written between roughly 1930 and 1935. Uh, very interesting, fun stories, uh, some good ones in there. And of course, uh, this collection will give you all three of the short stories that feature 
picture that typical son of Ethermad scientist, Haskell von Munderputz. But beyond those three, there's a lot of great stuff here. I mean, this this is the era of the uh, silver cigar-shaped rockets that fly between planets and land on their back end with their nose pointing towards the sky. A lot of good stuff here. Which we now have again due to the glory of SpaceX. That's the weird part. Have you seen one of those rockets land? It looks like a rocket launch being played in reverse. It's it's obscene. Uh, I was just going to finish off with for Gernsback Continuum. Uh, look for short stories by A.E. Van Vogt, who wrote in the 30s and 40s. I think his work would be good good inspiration. But uh, yeah, let's, let's hear him, Terry. Sure. Two Wikipedia pages that are annoyingly useful for me for the Sons of Ether. One is the article on pathological science, which is a case where people are tricked into false results or subjective effects, wistful thinking, or some sort of threshold interaction that's not quite there. It was a phrase coined by Irving Langmuir, who was the base of Dr. Felix Honecker, that Kurt Vonnegut was fond of using. And it gives you a bunch of examples of failed theories and how they failed. And that is a start down the rabbit hole of what Wikipedia politely calls superseded theories of science. This is a giant list of theories that have been deemed obsolete or incorporated into larger beliefs within the scientific consensus. This is just a free list of a, like a hundred theories that are now considered passe, but not necessarily to your son of ether. Within canon production, um, there, there are other books, but I would like to also draw attention to uh, Sebastian Freeman's work in the Storyteller Vault, The Halion Effect, or The Hallian Effect, which talks about Hollow Earth very specifically. One thing that science fiction authors tend to focus on is the technology and how the technology is implemented, but not necessarily how the technology changes us or the fact that I'm, I'm kind of bothered by the term soft sciences because it's used to indicate cases where statistical effects need to be used to identify things. But if we use that definition, modern physics is a soft science because all of our major discoveries are being found at a statistical level. Like it is not a case where we're doing a clear cut experiment where one thing happens. We are sifting results out of millions of particle collisions or thousand observed galaxies. But I think we also need to consider how the technology changes us. And for that, I think Ursula K. Le Guin is kind of hard to beat any of her books in the Ansible series where she discusses the effects of technology and how it reorganizes culture. I think is important background. Again, go to Wikipedia, read the plot summary. If one strikes you, buy it. But that overview is usually good enough to run with it. Octavia Butler did an amazing job of saying, hey, if this small thing were different, this is how society would reorganize around it. Margaret Atwood, the same way. We have a lot of wonderful science fiction authors that not only talk about the hard tech, but also how society responds to it. And I think if we're going to do a balanced presentation, we kind of need both sides. What would a society really look like if this thing were true. And if you're taking your characters to an umbral realm where technology is fundamentally different, the way society works should change as well. And I think those are some authors who I think will give a, a few ideas and I'll have more specific examples within our show notes. So if you're curious, go to magethepodcast.com or in your podcatcher, look at the show notes. We'll have all of these listed there. As a aside, whenever you buy something through DriveThruRPG using our link, whenever you buy something with one of our links through DriveThruRPG, we get a small finder's fee for that, as it were, and that helps pay for the show. So think of us whenever you're going to buy something there. Certainly, and I'm going to be uh, looking forward to the show notes myself because uh, although I do have a contribution to it, I'm looking forward to uh, seeing some of the uh, stuff you placed there for us. Uh, also, uh, before we move on to some adventure ideas, uh, I have often in the past brought out one or two particular items off of Anders Mage Page 2.0 that I thought uh, might be uh, helpful inspiration. It is not surprising that uh, I recommend the entire Sons of Ether page for Anders Mage Page 2.0. There's a lot of good material here. It's hard for me to pick out uh, one or two favorites. Uh, not only only is there a lot of good stuff for you to uh, read there for free on Anders Mage page 2.0. But if you go down towards the bottom, I have maintained a link to Anders Mad Scientist page, which is a separate website he built back in the 90s just for mad science and the mad scientists that pursue it. And to this day, Anders himself still maintains that page. So you don't need my copy. The original is linked for your reading pleasure. So moving on to adventure ideas, I've got three that I thought might be uh, fun to share. Uh, first off, avoid engineering 
senior scientist has stumbled across a copy of Tsar Vargo's conversion engine plans. Adapting it to work with dark energy, the scientist has had successes, but is being sanctioned by the technocracy. Etherite scientists are eager to welcome a defector, and the players are sent to convince and protect her. Can the players argue persuasively? Are Tsar Vargo's plans genuine? Have the New World Order used their mental techniques to to turn one of the scientist's technicians into a sleeper agent against her? The scientist's lab uh, could be in a small horizon realm with a bonus to the uh, forces sphere so high that players have to be careful whenever using uh, the forces sphere. Number two, Elias, who is mentioned in the history chapter as being the uh, in the mage world, the real-life uh, Frankenstein's monster. Elias, a awakened creation and son of Ether now, is sought by a player to teach his discovery of rhodomagnetics. But Elias is detained overseas and cannot be met directly. And on top of that, he has sent by communique an urgent request. A group of explorers learned of the hollow earth from Elias and are now marooned there. Elias feels responsible and begs the players to rescue these explorers. The players must not reveal any secrets of Son of Ether research bases there in the process. Once on the scene, the players learn another group is following them from a distance, a group quite adept at survival in the hollow earth. And final is number three. The players answer a plea for help and head to the city docks to find a fellow scientist and his ingenious submarine. After a brief tour of the craft's breakthrough engine that runs on newly discovered oxystone, the technocracy attacks. The sub's owner dies in the fight and leaves an uh, awesome responsibility to the players. In three months, an Iteration X member will speak at a conference in Palma on the Mediterranean, Mediterranean island of Mallorca. The players are given the submarine and its crew and asked to keep it out of technocracy hands while completing the paper on Oxystone in time to thwart Iteration X at the conference. Can the players learn the secrets of Oxystone in time? Can they handle leadership of this acolyte crew? What submersible weapons will the Void Engineers unleash? So there you go, folks. A few ideas out of my head. I'm sure that uh, the ideas out of your head are going to be better, but uh, if my ideas spark a few of your own, then I've done my job. Nice. I, I, my dream tradition is some sort of strange love child between the Euthanatos and the Sons of Aether. We've now covered both halves of that, so I will really have nothing to say for the next three tradition books that we have left. So that should be, <laughs> that should, we should be able to wrap those up real quick. No, I'm sure you'll come up with something for us, Terry. Uh, in the meantime, though, if you want to contact us, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, anything on your mind or any questions you have for us, perhaps even something you'd like to read on the show, magethepodcast at gmail.com will get right to us. Our producer watches that himself and handles those emails responsibly. Uh, also, you can subscribe to Mage the Podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and tune in. And I have heard the news that iTunes may be going away soon. But still, if uh, you leave a review for us, those reviews are probably going to push forward into whatever new thing Apple offers. So your efforts will not be wasted, and it will help improve the visibility of our show when other people do a search for something to listen to. You can also follow us on Twitter at Mage the Podcast. This episode of Mage the Podcast was executively produced by Richard Bat Brewster and Ira Grace. If you'd like to become an executive producer and help support the podcast, click the link on today's show notes at magethepodcast.com. Until next time, this is Adam and Terry signing off for Mage the Podcast. Towards Ascension. Bye. <laughs>